So let's say you're done with medical school now. You're a doctor. This is what you came for. All those long hours of studying, exams, practical application. You did it. Good on you. But something's not right. There's something else you got to do. The systems that you're working in, it's, it's not efficient. The processes are archaic. Things can be done better in health with the help of technology. And you reckon you can make it happen. So you've got a choice. You're already a doctor. You're on that boat. You've invested that time and effort in medical school. You've got a good clinical job. Surely you wouldn't let it all go and do something else, would you? Surely you just stick it out, stick the course, be the best doctor you can be, save people's lives, live a long, fulfilling medical career, and that's it. Or you could do something else. Well, my guest today did something else. It's Josh Case, a junior doctor and software developer who's helping doctors to code and creating medical apps to make a better healthcare system. This one's going to be good. So stick around, Team Health Tech. Let's make it happen. Welcome to Talking Health Tech with Peter Birch, a podcast featuring conversations with key players and influencers to promote innovation and collaboration for better healthcare enabled by technology. With me today is Josh Case, an Australian junior doctor and software developer passionate about innovation, global health, entrepreneurship, and teaching doctors to code. He's the creator of an app called Rapid Access to Forms, Rapid AF, a cloud library for paper forms that turns any hospital fax machine into a print-on-demand centre for thousands of hospital paper forms. He's also the author of Code Blue, an introduction to programming for doctors and medical students. Hey, Josh, how are you going? I'm very well, Pete. Uh, thank you for that very warm and esteemed introduction. I'm not used to <laughs> such a long lead time, so thank you for the very kind words. It has all gone to my head. So, <laughs> <laughs> mate, it's going to be. I've been pumped about this chat all week. Hey, like, and there's been a bit of dead set. There's been buzz in the community about it and everything that we're having Josh on the show. I think that your story's probably inspired a few people, and there's probably a lot of people who've not heard the story that I really want to make sure that they kind of get to hear it. And it's great that you're an Aussie doctor that's making a difference and doing something a bit different. So it'd be great to get stuck in. Let's start with you, man. Tell us your story. Who's Josh Case? Big question. Really big question. I I suppose the short answer to that is I'm an Australian doctor who I guess has a very strong interest in technology and a bit of an itch for entrepreneurship. I've had a background through medical school and undergrad of interest in global health, global health programs and that sort of thing. I've also had over the last probably 10 to 12 years, a growing interest in software development, programming, websites, mobile apps, scripts, freelance work, all sorts of bits and pieces that have, I guess, sort of come to a head a little bit in that over the last 10 years, I've incrementally built things that are each slightly better than the last. And I've now sort of gotten to a point where I guess I have a somewhat unique skill set for a recent medical graduate. I've just finished my first full year of full-time work out of medical school. And there's a few of us around, but there's not that many, I guess, doctors who as heavily invested in sort of the software technology world as I am and working in systems that not as efficient as they could be, that are bureaucratic and slow and not as willing to uptake technology as they could be, basically all of those factors put together made me realize that there's a real opportunity for myself on the boundary between clinical and technical. So I guess that's sort of the short summary of who I am. And this all sort of came to a head recently when I decided to greatly reduce my clinical hours and sort of go out on my own and try and build cool stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. 
I'm interested to know more about that particular part about you moving away from the full-time clinical gig. So tell us about that. What was it like stepping away from, you know, full-time medicine? It's been challenging in lots of different ways. And in one sense, it's still a very new change. So I published a blog post about a week ago, excuse me, one month ago, expressing my intent to do this and have only really made the transition in the last two weeks. And I've been planning it for eight months or more because medical recruitment cycles are thinking eight to 10 months in advance. So you sort of have to be planning this far in advance if you want to make a career move like this. And I've kind of gone through waves of rampant optimism where I'm just so excited. And to be honest, I'm excited all the time when I'm working on my tech projects, but rampant optimism where you can't stop me from just spending ungodly amounts of hours working on the stuff that I'm working on through to lows where, you know, particularly on the first day when I woke up and went to work on my tech stuff and all my housemates, three other doctors, they all went to the hospital. That was a bit sort of a a moment where it'll sunk in. And in those moments, I have doubts where I say, oh, you can't do this. It's not going to work. Uh, you're wasting your time. How are you going to pay your rent? How are you going to do this and the other? So it's ve- there's very much been, I guess, psychological hurdles for me in terms of I work for myself now. And if I don't get out of bed or if I muck around, I'm the only one that I'm accountable to. So yeah, it's had some pros and some cons. It's been absolutely awesome to actually have some time to build the things that I've wanted to build for some you know years and to try and work on the types of problems that I've wanted to work on particularly during my internship and the end of medical school, I had so many things where I'd be doing some horrendous data entry task or administrative task. It was just painful and sitting there with the skills able to solve them, but not the time to be able to sit down and actually sort of flesh it out was quite painful. And now being able to build some of the stuff to fix those problems is hugely empowering. So it's up and down. No, I can definitely relate. And you wrote an article recently about, I think it was your experience where uh, you had to do a data entry task or something whilst on shift and you wrote some code on it on Notepad or something like that to try and solve it faster. That, that was an awesome story. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, and I think this is one that many junior doctors will relate to, particularly on surgical units where there's, there's a whole range of reasons why this job exists. I guess one of the core problems is that for many of our hospital systems, they don't talk to each other. And so each of them sort of have little bits of information that we all sort of need to organize into a nice, clean way. And this task of essentially clerical slash data entry level work where you have to organize all that information into one task is often the job of the most junior doctor on the team. And the unit that I was working in at the time had six of these junior doctors who would come in anywhere from 30 minutes to an hour before work, before their rostered start time to prepare this document, the team list, the list as it's called. And one of the most time-consuming parts of this job is to get the pathology results, the blood tests from the previous day, and kind of arrange them in the team list in a way that the rest of the team can sort of read cleanly. And I, one day during lunch or during my shift, I was bemoaning the fact of how bad that job is and having wanted to automate it for a while, but not really knowing how I could interface my solutions that I'm building with, I guess, a hospital system. I was on shift. I was just sort of mucking around on the web browser as I do and sort of realized that I could use some JavaScript to, and if you don't know what JavaScript is in this context, it's basically code that you can put into your browser and you can modify things on a web page in front of you. You can fetch information. If you master it, you can do all sorts of things with it. I mean, it will run on any web browser. And so once I realized that I could do this in JavaScript, I went straight to the hospital library, pulled out Notepad on one of the library computers and yeah, started just bashing away at this thing. And I guess there are some medico-legally gray issues associated with its use. And for that reason, I haven't deployed it widely. I am in talks with the 
team who maintain the application that it sort of extends. So there's a hospital information system that I've actually been asked not to mention the name of. That this thing, I know it's all a bit backwards, isn't it? But it, it, it basically <laughs> extends, it extends the functionality of this hospital information system. And I'm now in talks with the development team of that system to, I guess, integrate the functionality in a more safe and regulated way, which, you know, I was never trying to be a cowboy about this. But I think if you want to make change, sometimes you need to, you know, rustle a few, <laughs> rustle a few leaves. On the- yeah, that's amazing. And I think that that's what excites me about, I guess, the future of healthcare in Australia and the evolution into something that is a bit more innovative is that it's this new wave of capability. And I think when you've been in the game for a while and you think about, well, hey, there's, you know, we need to make a change to a hospital information system or something like that. That's going to take you years of time to be able to go through the process and put together templates and put together just even to be able to organize a meeting to talk about it takes a couple of months. So to be able to smash out something that then demonstrates like real world value from the ground, I think that's super powerful. And it's good to hear that at least there's those conversations ongoing to be able to do that in a way that's scalable and controllable too. So that's awesome. And then, so tell us a bit more about what you're working on now. You mentioned that you're building solutions and actually, you know, I've followed a little bit on Twitter as well, but tell us a bit more about what you work on on a day to day. I'll tell you a short story about, I guess, how I've landed to be where I am in terms of all this sort of stuff. So when I made the decision to go part-time back around March, April of last year, it had obviously been sort of formulating for a while back then. I was looking eight or nine months in advance and I just sold a very, very small freelance software project that I'd done to somewhere out of hot health that was relating to another industry. I just sold that and made a very small amount of money, like a very, very small amount of money from that. And at that time, I basically said to myself, okay, well, come January next year, by then you'll have some other side project, I guess, at a point that's, you know, ready to take more of your time and you'd be ready to sort of hit the ground running on that. In between that, there was COVID. I got redeployed a couple of times. I also wrote this book that I'm really proud that I wrote, but, you know, it took every ounce of my living energy for seven and a half months. And, you know, by the end of it, I was, I, I'm re- again, I'm really proud of what I've created, but man, it, there's so much of my soul in that book that I, by the time I came to the end of it, I was like, okay, great. I'm happy that this is done now. Long story short, I basically got to December and said, oh my goodness, you know, I'm cutting my wages in half in about four weeks time. And I haven't really got a project that is at the stage that, to be honest with you, warrants me going in a financial sense, warrants me going part-time onto it. And so I was sort of thinking about the health landscape. And as you say, health innovation, particularly health IT innovation, does not happen in a scale of weeks. It happens in a scale of years. And if you're lucky, it happens in a scale of months. Because particularly when you're dealing with large, essentially public government organizations, that's just the timescale that you're just looking at for a range of reasons. So I said to myself, what are the types of projects that I can work on that I could launch a prototype in a scale of weeks rather than months? And I distilled this idea down even simpler and I could have sort of reached the conclusion that if I can meet two criteria, the first being if I don't store patient data and two, if a dodgy output from my app wouldn't harm a patient, if I meet both of those criteria, then suddenly a lot of the regulation hoops that you need to jump through fall away. And yes, you could argue that a lot of the, I guess, sexy or exciting ideas are excluded when you have those criteria in mind. By the other side of the token, administrative tasks are just as much of a burden for hospitals as clinical tasks are. And the other big advantage is that you can iterate in a scale of weeks. So when looking for projects that had those criteria, I started to think about the problems that I had as a junior doctor and continue to have every day. And one of those problems was the fact that at the hospital that I work at, there are 1,755 different paper forms that get used in different 
situations. Around 20% of our workspace is occupied by pigeonholes that have, this is form A, this is form B, this is a referral to this service, this is that. And not only is 25% of the space on this floor occupied by pigeonholes, so is every other floor. And frustratingly, the layout is not the same. So you have to memor- part of being efficient as a junior doctor is memorizing in the hospital where these forms are. There's a whole lot of other problems that I won't go into too deeply. But that was a problem providing essentially rapid access to these forms in an efficient way was a problem that I very comfortably had the skills to be able to solve. And, you know, when you start thinking about it, there's sort of lots of extensions that you can add on to this. For example, when I request a form, I can now pre-fill the predictable fields on the form for you. So your name, today's date, your provider number, your boss's name, all that stuff, all leading to efficiency gains. And that's pretty much how I've come to land on this project. My strategy this year is to launch things as quickly as I can on a scale of weeks to a small number of months, launch things as quickly as I can, see if they get traction, if they get usership. And if they do, then I'm going to double down on that project. And if they don't, I'll just look for other opportunities. I think as founders, we often become, I guess, married to our ideas. And by launching things rapidly and just watching what happens, I hope to limit the amount of attachment that I get to my ideas, allowing me to have many, many, many rolls of the dice, if you will, for projects that succeed, if that kind of makes sense. I know that was a bit of a rant, (laughs) a roundabout rant to answer your question, but that's pretty much my mentality when it comes to this year. Yeah, no, it's, and it's a fascinating insight that many others that would be either going through that process at different stages of that life cycle or at least can picture themselves in it would find that remarkably helpful hearing your perspective on it. I think what's really cool on the point of sharing as well, following your Twitter account, I think it's awesome how open you are in terms of the process of developing some of these apps and some of the things you've come across and often some of the challenges that you've had where it's like something's not worked successfully. So why are you so open in sharing the progress? You know, I'm not a marketing expert and to be honest with you, I have no real training in marketing at all. But one thing that I guess I've tried over the last year or so is to, as you say, be very transparent about the things that I'm working on, the problems that I'm having, the successes as well, but you know, the things that are not working, the things that are embarrassing in a sense that that unsuccessful, etc. And in my limited experience, what I've found is that authenticity or the openness has this kind of like magnetic effect on drawing the right types of people towards you, the people that are interested in the problems that you're working on. If they see you toiling with or struggling with issues that they're having, and when you give them that level of insight, that kind of insider knowledge, you indoctrinate them into your inner circle. They're behind the scenes. They feel, I guess, invested in the journey. And it's this kind of this idea of early adopters. If I'm sure you've read the thinking around this, you know, so your early sort of super users are your biggest champions and you should do what you can to sort of really recruit them and engage them. And that's what I do. You know, if I, I share things like my sales page for my book, I share when I recently did a soft launch at Toowoomba Hospital of rapid access to forms, I shared the analytics, didn't go that well. And I'm just very open about that. And I think by being open, it's a fresh breath of air when if you go through, I don't know what your LinkedIn profile is like, not your profile, but your feed and, you know, other social media feeds, it's very much this compulsion to, I guess, put your best foot forward and make it all seem like, I won this award, I did this, I've been picked for that. And it's just refreshing to be like, hey, I put a lot of work into this project and it didn't go well. And here are the reasons I think why. That is just a really, it's an easy way for me to produce content that I think people find interesting because I literally just document what I did that day or what I launched and how it went. It's content that writes itself 
and it is magnetic in terms of pulling the right people towards you. So it's a marketing strategy that has meant I don't need to think about what I create and in general seems to be content that people find interesting. Yeah. And I think, like you say, it's refreshing in that it's not through that lens that many put their social media updates through of like, this is only the best bits that I've got. But also I think as well, it's manageable and sustainable over a long period of time as well. Like particularly you as, as an individual, you don't need to, if you're living two personalities or two personas, one online and one in reality, you don't feel like you have to then constantly post as your alternate positive reality online and try and manage two lives. It's literally, this is what's happening in real time. Time and that hopefully reduces some of the cognitive load on you too. So that's absolutely right. Yeah, absolutely right. It, it means your content creation pipeline is just automatic. <laughs> Obviously, a few details I need sorting out, but yeah. So you've got this book, the book that you've released. It's teaching doctors to code, and that's what you do as well. Why do you do that? Is it a skill that you think every doctor should have, or it only suits a certain type? Or what's your approach to it? This is a question I get asked fairly commonly if I would advocate for doctors learning programming in medical school and whether I think every single doctor should learn to code, et cetera, et cetera. And the answer to that is a categorical no. I don't, don't think every single doctor should learn to code. You know, the rank and file doctor should get excellent clinical skills, become an excellent communicator, learn how to read science, you know, learn, learn disciplines that are directly relevant to the application of medicine. And if this sort of stuff does not interest you, then I don't think we should mandate that you come down this road. My position on this is, first of all, there's a, an enormous amount of opportunity for clinicians who have technical skills, not even necessarily expert technical skills, sort of intermediate level skills, enough to know the language, enough to have put together a few simple projects themselves. There's an enormous amount of opportunity in that space. I think that space is going to only continue to grow. There's going to be an explosion of employment opportunities around this, not just in the medtech space, where my experience with medtech startups is that they are very hungry for clinicians who have some level of technical insight, whether that's in software or whatever they're working on. But as data science technologies over the next 10, 20, 30 years become more and more applicable or applicable in a real life context, we're going to need clinicians who can oversee, you know, maintain, implement and provide quality assurance for these types of tools as they come into hospitals. And I think the overall theme and the overall reason I'm working so hard on this is programming and innovation and entrepreneurship are kind of like very tightly coupled, like really can't escape each other in some sense. And when you start thinking about programming, you start thinking about product development, you start thinking about automation, you start thinking about workflow processes. And so if you get to an intermediate level of programming, I think you become indoctrinated into a culture of forward thinking, of quality improvement, of all of those things. And I think if we have more doctors in the health ecosystem that have those skills, we'll have less friction for higher quality innovation. And that's kind of like the big picture of why I put so much time and effort into that kind of stuff. Love it. I think you put that really succinctly and I'd love for that message to be able to be shared at a broader scale too. I think that that can make a lot of differences over a long period of time. That's awesome. You talked a bit about the problem rapid access to form solves around all the bits of paper everywhere and the pigeonholes. Bigger picture, the big problems within health IT or I guess within healthcare generally, what are the big problems that need to be solved that you've got your eye on more generally? At a big scale, I've kind of already touched on one and that's having healthcare systems that are ready and willing to not only accept new innovation and go to lengths to implement them and that sort of thing, but 
also to take risks with implementations of new technologies. I'm not saying risks in the sense that we risk patient lives or that we share their data indiscriminately or not those sort of risks. The risks I'm talking about are more to do with organizational effort and resources, financial risks. There's a little bit of, I guess, public relations risks, PR risks. If you launch some sort of pilot that you end up shutting down and walking away from it. And in terms of specific, I guess, clinical problems or organizational problems, the biggest overall problem that we have in Australia in health is that X does not talk to Y. So I've kind of already touched on this prior in the episode. This is a very big and very challenging problem. It's a B for many billion dollar problem. Like it's an enormous system problem that we have where our GP services don't talk to our hospital services inside our hospital, our operating room services doesn't talk to our pathology service, which doesn't talk to our emergency department services, which doesn't talk to private pathology providers like Sullivan Nicolaides or QML or whatever your private pathology providers are around you, which doesn't talk to private radiology, which doesn't talk to... We have all these silos of information that are not in standard formats that are understandably, and I'm not for a minute suggesting this shouldn't be the case, but they're very tightly regulated around, I guess, data security and privacy and all that kind of stuff. But by the same token, also have fax machines that are not encrypted and usernames and passwords plastered all over every computer screen in the entire hospital. So there's this real tautology or dichotomy of... I I mean, that that point, sorry to interrupt, but that, that totally gets me the the way that healthcare can so comfortably lean on the fact that, oh, it's patient data, so it's got to be secure. That's why it's like this. So just deal with it, right? But yeah, yeah, yes, it needs to be secure, but it doesn't need to be like this. I think that's... Yeah, exactly. It's, I think it's absolutely important because if someone's health data gets leaked, there's no taking that back. You, can, you can't undo that. There's no control Z in the real world. And there are unfortunately lots of institutions and organizations who would very, very much like to have data for one reason or another. And like there's strong financial incentives for them wanting to do so. But it is absolutely something we sit behind and we say, oh, no, everything needs to be very tightly regulated. We can't even move towards making progress on this because of this, that, and the other. And that's, I guess, a bit more where this idea of risk-taking comes in. We need institutions, you know, healthcare and medicine in general, all through our training, we are trained to see risk, avoid risk, prevent complications. You know, we are a conservative, defensive, and shy profession when it comes to any amount of risk. Like all everything we do is to avoid risk and prevent complications. And that kind of mentality, it's actually a poor cultural thing to have in a system when we're trying to make changes. Because when you make changes, guess what? There's a chance that the change is going to make things better. And there's a chance that the change is going to make things worse. And we need to be willing to take the chance that it's going to make something slightly worse in the short term for the potential gain in the long term. And that's something I'd very much like to see sort of change over the next couple of years. I think there's many others that would also like to see that. So there'll be many listening on that would agree with you. That's so great. So starting to round things out, Josh, thinking from the perspective of, you know, we've got a lot of community members with Talking Health Tech that are clinicians that might be thinking of creating their own solutions or doing something on the side while also seeing patients or looking for a technical co-founder to help them kind of create their solution. And, you know, they see a problem, but now what do they do? Have you got any advice for those wanting to create a solution, particularly those that are more clinically inclined? So, so much. I do lots of sort of theory crafting and thinking and writing kind of around this topic. So first thing I'd say is if anyone has any specific questions about their situation, I'd be very happy to reply to a message on LinkedIn or a tweet or an email or anything about any of that. So feel free to reach out to me would be step number one and take all my advice with a grain of salt because I don't 
portray myself as, I guess, a terribly successful businessman or anything, but I can help you get started. So first and foremost, I think consider starting small. You know, I'm all for working on hard problems. I'm all for solving billion dollar problems. But from the outside in the kind of the Zuckerberg area, it sort of seems like you have to have all this venture capital. You have to have an expert software development team. You have to have a data scientist. You have to have AI in your tagline. You have to have all that stuff to be like a med tech startup or to make innovations that see benefit. And so start small, start with the low hanging fruit. There is so much low hanging fruit in healthcare systems, everyone seems to want to try and replace radiologists with AI or whatever. And there's just a million things that need automating in the meantime. So start with low-hanging fruit if you want to dip your toes in. That's 100% tip number one. Tip number two kind of alludes to what I was talking about previously, those two criteria. If you're trying to keep things simple, don't handle patient data in your app. And two, don't put yourself in a position where a dodgy output from your app could harm a patient. If you meet both of those criteria, your iteration loops, you're talking days and weeks now instead of months and years. So consider doing that. In terms of technical stuff, writing your own apps, finding a technical co-founder, you do have the option of learning to code yourself. To get yourself to a point where you're building a production level app, that's hard. That's a long road. That's okay. You can get yourself to a point where you build a proof of concept that maybe doesn't have all the bells and whistles that you sort of envision in a reasonable time frame. It, it wouldn't necessarily be easy, but it is doable. And I really want to, listeners of the podcast, I basically want them to leave this call thinking that if that's a road that they wanted to go down as a healthcare professional with no technical background, they absolutely could. And there are resources, not just my book, there's lots of resources out there. I've got lots of blog posts on this topic. You are capable of doing that. In terms of finding a technical co-founder, there's a couple of tips that I have. One, is obviously it's all about your network. So networking is critically important. Specifically, go to your local university or your old university's startup events, things like Startup Weekend. There's so many of them and I've actually had a mind blank about the other like big brands. Go to those events, work on some dodgy idea with some undergrads that you don't even really believe in, but just meet people, talk to people, go out for coffees with people around that ecosystem, the organizers of the event, et cetera. And you'll find like-minded people who are looking for the same opportunities. Hospitals also occasionally have either conferences or hackathons where they come and work on problems like, you know, falls in hospitals. So go to those events, meet people. Other ways you can attract co-founders include joining like developer ecosystems on Twitter or like YouTube, following developers who are in your space, looking at the projects that they're working on, talking about them. That's a really good way to meet people. And then I guess the last one is, and this is to be honest with you, probably the most important thing about trying to recruit a co-founder, a technical co-founder, is that you're very much trying to create the perception that you're on a train destined for success and they need to jump on now or they're going to miss out on a whole heap of opportunity. And the way that you do that is by showing progress over time. So build your mock-ups, get on Microsoft Paint or Adobe Illustrator, Adobe Experience Design, build a mock-up of what your tool looks like. Start collecting emails of users that are going to be interested in the thing that you've built. If you can, hack together a very simple MVP. It might be a Google Sheet, might be something like that. There's actually 12 steps. I've distilled it into 12 steps to getting a project launched. And 11 of them require not one single line of code. So you can actually get a huge proportion of the way towards building this thing before you need to write. Now, in fairness, one of those steps is code the thing, which is a hard little step. But the point I'm trying to make is most developers get anywhere from like one to seven pitches a week from their uncle and their cousin and they're someone they all used to went to school with about project ideas or, you know, we should work on this together. And they've got absolutely nothing under their belt to demonstrate that they're serious about this. If you came to me and you said, this is what I'm working on. This is what it's going to look like. This is my vision. And I've got 127 emails of users who are interested. Then that becomes a far more compelling pitch. Yeah. 
Amazing. Such good advice. And I have seen that flow that you've got on your website too on joshcase.dev that people should definitely check out to see more about that process. But it's encouraging to know as well that most of those steps don't involve learning to code necessarily. So that would be reassuring. Hey, lastly then, so what's 2021 look like for you, man? Like you've given us a bit of a glimpse to it, but what are you going to be working on now? Now that I've got rapid access to forms to a point where I guess it's out into the world, over the next couple of weeks, I'm going to be watching that very closely and see if, you know, one of the key metrics I look for is do users of your product tell other people to use your product? That is one of the most central. It sounds quite subtle and quite simple, but what that means is you've solved a problem that someone has in a very elegant way, so much so that they want to tell other people about it. And that's a very good prognostic sign for your project. For now, I'm just kind of in an analytics phase where I'm watching that very closely. And the next, to be honest with you, two to three weeks are going to decide whether I double down on rapid AF or work on something else. I've got about, I've got a journal that I've been keeping for the last three years, all with ideas for things that need automating. So that's sort of rapid AF. I guess also on the side, I'm trying to establish a track record of solving slightly increasingly complex problems in a healthcare ecosystem. So one problem that I solved was that kind of like morning list issue that we had on surgical units. The next one I'm going to solve, I'm probably going to release it associated with a blog post in a couple of days is this for hospitals that are unfortunately still on pen and paper, like many of our hospitals, this idea of ordering blood tests for your patients many days in advance. So if I, just as a quick example, if I have 25 patients under my care and I'm knocking off work on a Friday and I'm not coming back till Monday, that's three days where there are minimal staff sort of covering my patients. And one of the jobs that is expected of me before I go home is ordering appropriate blood tests for them over the weekend. So if I've got 25 patients and that's three days, Saturday, Sunday, Monday is worth of blood tests and aid ordering. That's 75 forms that need filling out. And each of them is an individual form, which is horrid. That, that could take one hour on a Friday afternoon just to organize blood tests for the weekend. So I'm building a tool to let people just tick some boxes, hit go, and you'll order bloods for your whole team on analog hospital. So, you know, I'm looking for opportunities for things that I can automate, small, medium problems that I can solve and I guess make our hospitals safer and more efficient. Epic, man. I can't wait to hear about all those. I think by the time that this episode gets released, that article will probably be out so people can go check that out. Is it joshcase.dev? Is that where people should go to check out? Yep. Excellent. Follow you on Twitter as well. There's a lot of stuff going on there, which is really um, insightful. I expect there'll probably be a couple of vendors that will contact you as well, looking for insights as well at some point too. We should definitely do an episode in 12 months or even sooner and check in on how things are going because it's really exciting to hear your perspective on things and what the future might lead to. So thank you so much for making the time, buddy. All the details will be in the show notes for people to check out. All the best and good luck for 2021, mate. Thanks very much, Peter. Thank you so much for having me and we'll have to catch up for a coffee next time I'm down in Sydney. Thanks for listening to the show. Check out talkinghealthtech.com to connect with other people in our community and to learn more about the Australian health tech industry. Also, make sure you hit subscribe on your favourite podcast player so you don't miss an episode and share this episode with a few people who need to hear it. Now go make it happen. Go make it happen.